what can be right is us working for the goodness embodying the best qualities of human nature and really devoted to service hello vicky robin here host of what could possibly go right a project of postcarbon institute we interview cultural scouts people who see far and serve the common good asking them each our one question in the midst of all that seems to be going awry, what could possibly go right? My guest today is Margaret Wheatley, or Meg. Meg began caring about the world's peoples in 1966 as a Peace Corps volunteer in post-war Korea. In many different roles, speaker, teacher, consultant, advisor, formal, formal leader, her work has deepened into an unshakable conviction that leaders must learn how to invoke people's inherent generosity, creativity, and need for community. As this world tears us apart, sane leadership on behalf of the human spirit is the only way forward. She is co-founder and president of the Burkana Institute, an organizational consultant since 1973, a global citizen since her youth, and a prolific writer. She has authored nine books, including the classic Leadership and the New Science. She has been honored for her groundbreaking work by many professional associations, universities, and organizations. In her new book, Who Do We Choose to Be?, she presents her hard-won realizations about where and how to serve in this time of unraveling. This comes from seeing that the world has changed, that is no longer subject to the kind of interventions she spent her life articulating. She asks us to face reality, one element of which is that the polycrisis, the great unraveling, is not fixable. It's already careening towards civilizational devolution. It's hard for activists to accept this, yet she isn't saying we can do nothing. She's saying it's time to tame our egos Whatever we're doing, we can temper our need for control of outcomes and cultivate humility. And that this is the spirit we need to bring to whatever we're doing in response to the actual conditions on the ground where we are in this moment. Serving in this time, she says, is a spiritual discipline. So here's my conversation with Meg Wheatley. Welcome, Meg Wheatley, to What Could Possibly Go Right?, you know, from the start of this podcast three years ago, our intention has been to interview what we call cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, to get a glimpse of what they see on the horizon. We've asked them to help us see more clearly so we can act more courageously in complex times. It seemed at that time that all bets were off and we were in new territory and our scouts could orient us. We didn't ask people for their prescriptions or solutions. Instead, we asked our guests to take a fresh look at what is emerging now, grounded in their long, deep work, but still in the question. So we said to help us see more clearly so we can act more courageously. And this seems amazingly aligned with the purpose you state for your work. You say your aspiration is for us to see clearly so we can act wisely. So I'm reading your book, Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Cultivating Leadership, restoring sanity. It is challenging me and also freeing me. So I hope you can richly lay out what you are seeing in this time. And then, you know, if there's time, we can evolve into a conversation. So I will ask you the question I ask every guest. In the face of all that is going awry, what could possibly go right? So I'm very happy to be with you again, Vicki. We have long history. And I want to first speak about the role of scout because it is something I learned from uh, from where scouting is most important. In 1993, I was invited by the head of the U.S. Army, General Gordon Sullivan, to be his scout um, to see where the Army was changing. He was the most progressive, intelligent, brilliant leader I've worked with, and he was trying to prepare the army for the 21st century, especially around free and open information, sense-making by soldiers on the ground. It was my first experience with the military. I have the deepest respect for soldiers since then. 
unquestionably, it's where I learned about my work, which is what does it take to be a warrior? But when he invited me to be his scout, there I am, I'm an OD consultant. It's like a cute term, right? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, we, we used it rather glibly in those days. And then I realized that he wanted to see the army through my eyes so that he could make smart decisions. It wasn't just curious, casual, or um, disrespected information. What I was bringing to him, which ironically was about the future of tank warfare, (laughs) tank training, um, he needed that information as part of his decision-making process. So from the get-go, I was treated with the most respect I've ever experienced as a professional woman, Uh, absolute respect and absolute courtliness, but we don't, I don't need to describe that. It was just a wonderful experience at the time. But what's lacking now in our, uh, well, what's lacking for me is uh, I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't use the word scout anymore. I do have many gifts that have been given to me and refined over time. And one of them is being out in the world. And now it's a discipline to be well-informed about what's happening basically everywhere. And that's very taxing work because what's happening is so tragic and so life-destroying. But I was given the gift of access, and then I was given the gift of insight, I think, because I'd been trained as a systems thinker and uh, perhaps other reasons as well. Seeing what's going on and seeing the denial or the inability to accept what's going on has been exceedingly frustrating until I accepted it. It was different than the role I played in the Army where the information was necessary. Um, There's so many of us who have been sounding bringing our information perspectives and experience into the public arena. And what we've been met with is denial or deliberate uh, conscious unwillingness to see what's really happening because it doesn't benefit certain individuals or certain corporations or certain powerful leaders. So we are in a state of absolute life-destroying behaviors. I used to, I still work with the image of life-affirming leadership. What is life-affirming leadership? Well, it's based on the human spirit. It's based on what cultivates life, what cultivates growth. Well, one of the things that cultivates life and growth is adapting to circumstances. And we have a, a real confusion about that evolution means Progress. Well, it doesn't mean that at all. It means taking in what's happening in your current environment and making changes so that you can survive. Um, I wish we were behaving in a true evolutionary adaptive ways, but what I see everywhere is we are devolving. We're devolving as a species because now I've characterized this as the age of threat. And when human beings are in threat as a survival mechanism, we don't wake up and notice what's going on. We retreat into the reptilian brain where the only, this is a a recent interest to me in in studying uh, neurobiology, the response of the amygdala, which is triggered by fear and threat, the response is always aggression. It's always acting out with aggression. It's it's embodying our fear. This is so evident to me in everything that's happening on the streets, in protests around the world. But we also, in, in that reptilian brain, we withdraw 
and become human beasts or human animals. I don't care, but we're we're forfeiting the very capacities we need, the beauty of being human, our rich uh, ability to think, to dream, to imagine, to remember, to envision, to relate to another, uh, to walk in another's shoes. Um, all of that disappears when we're acting as human animals and that for me is the explanation of everything that we're experiencing now with what we call polarization i no longer call it polarization i i just think it's self-defense it's survival but survival isn't found in withdrawing from reality it's found from being willing being brave enough to encounter reality and to have a desire to see what's going on. I mean, I love that we have, I would say, almost identical slogans here, right? <laughs> right? We need to see clearly. We need to see clearly because there's work to be done from those of us who have always striven to make a difference with our work. We've always striven to want to contribute this is who we are as, you know, our peer groups, our colleagues, and our work itself has always been, how can I contribute to something beyond my own self-serving interests? Um, I work with that energy now. I rely on it, but with this important caveat the difference that we can make now is quite different. The difference has a difference now. Mm -hmm. It has changed. And we don't know how it's changed if we're not willing to face reality, if we're not willing to seek out the information that's out there, if, we're, if we have to be willing to move past this confusion, which is quite deliberately and intentionally created both by the Russians, the so former Soviets for many years since the 1980s, and by corporations set on just profiting off our backs and now off our deaths. I can't say it any more um, directly. I think it's not only they don't care about us, they're willing to kill us. Um, so here we are. We have to be willing to seek out reality. We have to be willing to encounter the incredible levels of grief and destruction and rage that come from really tuning into what is happening. Those of us sitting here with internet, with food, with security, it's our responsibility to tune in to reality, to notice what's going on, because the difference we can now make is different. It's of being of dedicated service at the local level where we can still create good lives or, or maybe not good lives, but embodiments of good human beings, which is the ultimate gift that we can offer. And I want us all to stop fussing about privilege and just get active with mm -hmm. the work that it, that can be done because we are secure and because mm -hmm. we have communication and because we have consciousness. You know? So everything that we've worked for from a self-focus uh, that we've all benefited from when we shift the framing to how do I use this now for the benefit of others, then privilege becomes responsibility. And the responsibility that I feel we all need to be so clear about and committed and even devoted to, I mean, it's a real discipline to stay active in the world now because we're constantly encountering these overwhelming tidal waves of grief and rage. I know what rage feels like now. I understand why people go out on the street. Um, because I feel it in myself frequently. How could so much 
death now be um, created. And now we can't stop these dynamics that have begun years and years ago, whether we're looking at the climate, the planet, or we're looking at human behavior. We're in this now. It's just going to play out. We can make a difference at the local level, and we need to make a difference. But that difference is different than formerly thinking we would change or save the world. And there's still a lot of people who are focused on what needs to shift in us, in our consciousness, in our uh, way we interact, thinking that if we, if we, I have to use the word fix, which is not a word I use generally, but if we fix this one thing and develop a higher level of consciousness, if we uh, develop new methods of collaboration, if we just see more clearly the logic of what's going on, we will be able to turn this around or get out of this or or have a soft landing. That's the newest. <laughs> I've noticed a lot of people are accepting we're in collapse, which is a historical description as well as a scientific one. Um, but now we're just looking for a soft landing. So we're still bargaining <laughs> with life. We're still, you know, in this... Uh, not in this real acceptance, we're still, we're, I, I would see it, I personally see it as a plague, as a set of blinders on our thinking that impedes clear seeing. The biggest blinder is hope, and as Michael Dowd has characterized it, and I use it a lot, hopium, we're drugged. We think without hope, we won't be able to stay motivated. And this is where I want to build on your uh, the name here. What could possibly go right? I want to redefine right in very Buddhist terms, because in Buddhism, there is right relationship, there is right communication, there is right work. And that definition of right is not dependent on outer circumstances. It's the clarity that comes from knowing your mind and developing your capacity for a stable mind to not be so triggered so easily, to know how to work with our triggers, that capacity, that's real clear seeing past mm -hmm. our ego demands, our personality demands, our habitual demands. That's the practices that I think can only be achieved through developing good meditation practice, clearing the mind as best we can, and noticing when we didn't clear it, when we were acting from um, an intense reaction because something got triggered in us. Being able to work with that and have a commitment to be a less triggered, more present person. I'm just describing the Warriors for the Human Spirit training now. But... I know what right action is for me. I know what right speech is. I know what right work is because I'm not the one who defines that. That is defined by the circumstances and context of where I am and what I see might be a meaningful contribution. So, rightness is not about affecting this world in our former criteria of success and failure. At that level, everything is going wrong, yes, but what can be right is, is us. Working for the goodness embodying the best qualities of human nature and really devoted to service. Um, and we people who are focused on right action, right relationship, right communication, what that means is we've worked very hard to get our egos out of the way, to get our personal neediness out of the way. Of course, we still have needs, but the neediness, the demands we make on reality is what we work 
to both know and then to let it dissipate. And once you're in this place of right action and right work, you're not judging what went wrong. You're not even as oppressed by what's going wrong and all the horror and tragedy that people are suffering from now. That doesn't need to be there. But now we also have climate in which we have no choice with what we've unleashed. But I know that wherever I am, and this is what I teach to whoever listen, I want to be available. I want to be an offering. That's another definition of I'm not trying to fix things. I'm not trying to readjust or make things better. I want to be an offering for whatever is going on. And the questions that I um, promote everywhere I can is to go into a situation, first of all, see how clear of judgments, biases, threat reactions you can be. That's the work in which we train our minds. But then when you see more clearly, you ask, what's needed here? What's needed here? Not what do I need, what do I want, or what would fulfill my purpose, but what's needed here? And with that clarity, you'll see far too many things that are needed, right? I mean, that's when we're just overwhelmed with sorrow and anxiety about, oh my God, look at this desperate situation or these desperate people. I want to help, but there's too many needs. So you ask the second question. And first you realize you will never be satisfied, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. We cannot be satisfied in our work any longer. We really do the best we can with our finite human resource. But the second question helps to find that by asking, uh, am I, do I have the conditions in my own life? Am I the right person now? to contribute to this need. So you look at your skills, that's the easy part, right? But you also look at your life circumstances, how stable is your life? This is why I started by speaking about the conditions we have of safety and security and food and connection. But you look at what's going on in your own life. If you've got a chaotic personal life going, or if you're feeling chaotic and unsettled, that's not a stable condition. Therefore, if you try and work with people according to their needs, but a lot of stuff's going on in you, you're just going to become a neurotic distraction for people. And we've certainly seen this where people are working their own issue as they try and contribute. So you need a level of stability. And then you need to notice, do I have any allies or supporters, or am I going to be a loner? I mean, you can, sometimes we are Don Quixote, but other times we have good community around us. So those two questions for me are framing how I look at everything, what's needed here, and then am I the right person to contribute at this time? That for me is the discovery of right work because it's not based on what I want. It's based on what is needed. And in working in that way, you actually discover your right work. You discover meaningful work. You discover work that is often joyful in those moments when you're not overwhelmed with sorrow or or grief. There's such joy available in this true connection with one another as we do work in horrible circumstances. You know, and we know that from the stories of wartime. And I know it personally because I've worked in post-disaster situations in several places. And um, when I was Mm -hmm. first aware of the role, the ability to feel joyful when you're doing hard work in the midst of overwhelming tragedy. I learned that in New Orleans post-Katrina because as I was collecting stories of people who said 
you know, I just had to be here. I drove a thousand miles. I just packed, got in my car and drove here because I needed to help. And then, you know, as I heard many stories, we were in the midst of dealing with death and destruction and despair. And it was quite awful at that physical level. But then they would surprise me by saying, but those were the most joyful moments of my life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I got curious about. What is joy? And and then I listened to, I think it was Richard Rohr who described joy as an experience of true communion. It's the state of being present, no personal needs, no personal ego needs, just being present for what needs to get done in the moment. And so it's promised by a lot of spiritual traditions, but we're transcending the self to be part of interbeingness. Mm -hmm. And that is always joyful. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you. So, you know, this goes back to our habitual criteria for that I have to feel good about my work or I have to feel it's meaningful and I define what the meaning is or I have to feel, um, yes, this is fulfilling my purpose or I have to feel respected or admired or somehow appreciated for this. These are all very human dynamics. But when we can transcend them and just do the work that needs doing, that's when we experience the richness of being. And that is always a feeling of joy because it's also a feeling of true communion, not, not connection, it's true communion. So let's talk about this. <laughs> right. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. Um, I've been scribbling some notes. So let me just see what, what question I want to go with. In a way, what you're saying is like intuitively, we can all go, yeah, right. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do, you know. And um, and we can perhaps remember a time when we rose. You're talking about rising to an occasion, but not in a heroic way, right. in a serviceful way. You know, here I am in in great comfort. You know, um, living on Whidbey Island, very great deal of safety. How are people who are, as you say, privileged? You know, but. But we're privileged in that we have a great deal of safety. We're not in wartime. We're not in, you know, this unraveling. We don't even know how we would behave at that time. We don't know if we would be cowering or, you know, like saving people in the streets. Right. You know, we do not know in ourselves what our what our metal is um, because we're not up against it. And when I say we and when you say we, I think we're referring to a type of person who is not normally, not currently, in massive distress. In what ways do we do we put ourselves in situations, not, you know, sort of neurotically, you know, going to, you know, some protest or going someplace to, you know, a soup kitchen, but how do we, how do we work with ourselves in our times of security to right. develop that capacity? Um, and I, it, it it doesn't matter our economic circumstances. It, it, you know, people could be in limited economic circumstances, but still feel very, you know, very stable. So how do we work with ourselves in in situations where we're 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 more privileged? Yeah. Well, again, I'm going to say let's use our privilege. And so when you ask how do we work with ourselves, that is. The second thing, the first is reorienting ourselves. This is the work that I do. The first work with training warriors for the human spirit who are leaders, activists, and concerned citizens, people who want to stay, people who want to stay involved and have to define a new role for themselves. Now, you can do this wherever you are right now. Because the it's a formation process. It's very much like becoming a priest or mm. of any faith or a monastic or someone who knows that I am now dedicating my energy, my well-being, 
my circumstances so that I can serve other people. We don't have to be in terrible conditions Mm -hmm. to find places that need our hearts and minds, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they're all over the place, including on Whitby, right? Oh, for sure. So that's the first thing is, you know, I use Theodore Roosevelt's great maxim, do what you can where you are with what you have. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is orienting myself I want to serve. And I'm going to learn what that means. I'm going to come up against myself and I'm going to learn what self-sacrifice means because I don't like it. Or I don't like, you know, when I interact with people, if I'm working in a homeless shelter, I could just get really put off by their presence, behavior, odor, aggression, Mm -hmm. whatever. So you can't just decide to go into these places that do require our or welcome our service. You can't just go in as a a person of goodwill. Mm -hmm. We've all done that. We get into fixing, we get into noticing everything that's wrong that we we could reorganize. I'm speaking very personally here (laughs) as a consultant in the past. Um, How we enter these situations is... We have to train for that because we want to enter them as being available and open, non-biased, non-judgmental. These are huge development goals, but they are achievable through a commitment to meditation practice, to developing mind-body awareness, to learning to see our triggers and then expand our perception Mm -hmm. But this takes a commitment to training. I'm not, I don't have the sufficient capacities before I train to be in places of suffering. Mm. We've all tried this, I would think. And and we have all sorts of reactions, including anger, when we see the cause of the suffering. And we've may want to protest that, but we certainly react to it by feeling angry. Uh, we may be, be offended, as I just spoke about being with homeless people. Uh, it's something that I learned. Um, we have to train ourselves. So there's the formation, the willingness to accept a new role for ourselves. There's a path of practice that has to be developed with discipline over time. And then there's the actual learning from the doing of the work of service. And that's where we learn about our triggers and we learn about rage and grief and all these strong emotions. But our commitment is to stay. That's the ultimate commitment. But you can't just stay as an open-hearted ultra compassionate person it eats you alive and we know that we know that personally our levels of exhaustion and dysfunction because this world is impossible to handle on our old terms it's even impossible to handle if you're just trying to understand the causes of injustice or you see injustice How do you learn to relate to injustice without anger? I just raised the bar for us. (laughs) (laughs) But it's about how do we, this is doable. I'm not, I'm speaking from my own experience and the experience of many other people that I've trained, but wanting to stay, but not wanting to be the way we normally are our filters, our reactivity, our anger, our overwhelm. If you want to stay, you have to train, period. You can't just go into this open-hearted. You will be eaten alive by your own compassion. And that will transfer into um, anger, and the anger will eat you up and destroy any possibility of participation. So this is what I'm describing is an enormous shift for how we develop ourselves. It is a well-trodden 
spiritually grounded path. Everything I've said, I have learned in my own Buddhist training, but everything I've learned is also part of the spiritual warrior path as well defined by many traditions. So you have to make the commitment, accept the role, and it's a historic role. You know, um, the warriors arise historically. They're people who are dedicated to preserving and protecting, whether it's the king's lands or, in my case, the human spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we are always a small group of dedicated people because this is a path that requires devotion and discipline and training. You can't be an accidental warrior. Right? We all have been. We can build on that experience, what it feels like right. to really be of service and be present in a situation. But um, what I quote often Sir John Glove, who's one of the historians that I use a lot in, in Who Do We Choose to Be and Understanding the Pattern of Collapse that We're In. Um, he said that, you know, there are always only a few people who understand that it is through self-sacrifice that community can be maintained. And they raised the banner of duty and service against the depravity and despair of their time. Wow. So this is a path not for the faint-hearted or the casual but for the open-hearted ones who understand this is a beautiful role. And as Chogyam Trungpa said, he said, it's just our turn. It's just our turn. Mm -hmm. So I no longer feel uh, uh, deceived or abandoned or the promises of this good life that didn't materialize all the materialists, all the grief that our populations are suffering for a lost promised future. I don't feel that at all. I now feel I know why I'm here right now. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's just our turn, really, folks. Let's not be so self-involved about our own grief, our own trauma. Let's just do the work. And it's a work of pure service. And it's incredibly meaningful. Hmm. Well, that is a high bar. Absolutely. That is a high bar. Because I, when I think about it for myself and for many people I know, I mean, we there's no way for us to, I mean, it seems like, in times like these, we don't want to remove ourselves. We come into situations with, to use a Christian term, our brokenness. We come in with our incompletion. We come in with our amygdalas, you know, the fight, flight, you know, fawn. <laughs> you know, we, we, I think what you're saying is that, yes, we come in with our brokenness, our fears. We come in with the full catastrophe of ourselves. We're not going to change that. What we're going to do is work on awareness of our reactivity and and commit to not having that be a a, a personal process of self-discovery, you know, but to to have it be a path of duty, which duty is a word that nobody likes to know. Oh, self-sacrifice is right <laughs> up there also. Yeah. So it just feels like. It feels like a, you know, like a, a, a narrow notch in, in, through which you're going to. Totally fulfilling, meaningful, joyful place to stand in the midst of this. And I don't start with our brokenness at all. I mean, I felt like I was listening to a little bit of St. Augustine here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just recently going to church, so that it comes to me that that language. But. Let's go with Matthew Fox and original blessing. Right. Um, but I work from, it's in all Asian uh, spiritual cosmologies that 
what we have to do is uncover, get rid of all the habituation, the culturalization of telling ourselves that we are less than, because at our very core is this Christ consciousness, is this basic goodness, is this purity, um, and, and the work through becoming mindful and conscious is to uncover all the things we have armored ourselves with. Mm. And, um, and so when I'm working with anyone, my aspiration is to be able to see through everything <laughs> to get to that basic core of, of the human spirit. Hmm. Yeah. I guess what I'm, I'm not, I just will say it again. I'm not getting it. I'm just saying that, that I, it sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying is that basically it's like an elite core. Um, it you know, certainly is. And of course we don't like the word elite, elite but right? we're few in numbers. We are never a mass movement. And and we recognize that. I mean, it exists in every culture at, at the difficult, hard times. I think of samurai warriors um, who were in great number, actually, um, hundreds of thousands of them at one time in battle against one another. But that's a life of true devotion. And, and let's define how narrow the gate is. But for me, it's the only way to find uh, a path of contribution, a path of meaning and joy in the midst of everything that is mm -hmm. crashing down around us. It just, it's a steady path. It's a well-worn, trodden path by millions of people before us, but we have to give up all the things we've been grasping after, right? Well, yes, I live a life of comfort and I recognize it's a privilege and therefore I feel guilty about it. But, you know, I'm still not willing to give that up. I'm not asking any. I mean, look at me. I live in a beautiful place in the mountains. Um, but I feel I was gifted with this stability mm -hmm. and aesthetic even. And I live on a very powerful mountain at Sundance, Utah. I, these are gifts that were given to me to support me, mm -hmm. not to distract me, not to occupy my focus of making it work or not, um, getting focused on money rather than opportunities. No, I, I really, truly understand this as a gift. And I would like all of us to have that sort of conversion experience mm -hmm. that my life has been given to me for a higher purpose. Period. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you use the term formation. It's 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 not just a meditation practice. There's something that you consider it's formation. There's a role, yes, which is I go from having different uh different criteria for who I am and what I need. You know, like people will say, well, I'm a this, I'm a that, or I need this, or I need that. We've got that to the max in this culture yeah. at this point. Um, to saying, I want to be of service, period. It's like and a dedication it, of your life energy. It's exactly and to that's get what to that. Me, you have to start there. That's exactly right, Vicki. You have to start by reframing your highest purpose. I mean, to say I'm available is a huge, huge deal, right? To say, use me, Lord. Mm -hmm. To say I'm available when I'm working with my teachers for whatever you want to direct me to i'm available it means but it is it's essentially fundamentally christian in orientation as well mm -hmm. thy will not mine right exactly yeah that is a daily prayer 
And I used to cower at that when I, I've been in many faiths and when I was a loving, devout Christian, um, that terrified me in my 20s. Could I really mm. say that I will not mind? Well, I would say, that's dangerous, Meg. <laughs> right, right. No, God speaks through my will. You know, if I want to right. do it, it must be God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. That's right. The old, there's an aphorism, don't ask what God wants you to do. Whatever you're doing, that's what God wants. You know, so it's like, yes, and. Um, right. So this is very, this is, so you, you mentioned your teachers. I'm sort of an since you're making this a sort of an inner dedication, I'm sort of pursuing not the ideas, but, but, you know, how you got here, you talk about your teachers and it seems to me that we have complex relationship with our teachers, but that we need people who are, you know, holding us in this process and calling us. And so, and so talk about, I mean, you found, you were worked with Pema Chodron, you found other teachers. Where, yeah. Like how do people, you know, it's like in this sort of very secular world right. where, you know, I have a pile of books, you know, like all sorts of different people and I poke around in the different ones. That's not a, that's not a process of formation. That's just, a, you know, looking for daily inspiration. Right. So what sorts of like what what suggestions not like recipes you know like, this is reflect a, on this a great longing among all of us who are really seeking to find a teacher i mean at any retreat people will always ask how do i find a teacher mm-hmm. and it is more difficult because of the overwhelming amount of books and YouTube videos and teachings that you can access. And I think finding a teacher, which is is very rare these days, uh, and it involves a level of surrender that most of us don't want. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with Pema Chodron, who was a friend before, and then for 10 years led me on very deep retreats every winter half of them at Gampo Abbey, but it was two months of just practice, solo retreats with her coming in. I uh, So that was like a graduate course in formation, but within the Shambhala tradition of we need to be spiritual warriors. Um, and then I have now completely surrendered surrendered and devoted to Sadhguru, who is a Indian yoga mystic of incredible manifestation. Um, and it's partly his ability to manifest billions of people behind a cause that was my initial attraction. And now he's the great support of the work that I'm doing. But the desire to find a teacher is very important but let's start with maybe the aspiration to find someone to surrender to which is not what usually people right. are asking for but could we create and this is all new thinking as we're talking here could Thank you. we um just develop the aspiration to find a path of contribution. This is how I phrase it in Who Do We Choose to Be? And that if I have that aspiration, which is open-ended, I mean, aspiration is a very uh, intense quality of focus, but it doesn't know how it manifests, right? So Mm -hmm. it's very open-ended. But if I just... Feed this aspiration that I want to be useful here. I want to serve. I don't want to be so frightened and withdrawn Mm -hmm. or self protective. Um, Just work with that aspiration, and you will find teachings, you will find readings that support this. Mm -hmm. And then you might find the one teacher, but I guess what I'm experimenting here with you is 
what do we first surrender to? Right. Because when you finally surrender to a teacher, it's pretty scary. But what do I first surrender to? Well, I surrender to wanting to serve, period. Right Mm -hmm. work, right relationship. Um, And then you learn how, what it takes to do that. Right. And then I believe as that, as you're out in the world doing this work and learning what it means to be of service, I do believe you find the teachings that support you Mm -hmm. and maybe the teachers as well. You know, there are more and more indigenous teachers arising. You know, I'm from Buddhist and now Indian mystic tradition. Um, But I started out Jewish, very focused on service Mm -hmm. and Christian, very devoted, still still regard Jesus and Buddha as the same manifestation of who we can be. So let's not get scared off by, or let's not get distracted by looking for a teacher. How can you embody teachings? How can you embody service, compassion, generosity? You know, so it's, Stepping onto the path, and then you find a lot of support along the right. And life itself becomes your teacher. Engagement. So this is all about life itself being the teacher. And you know what a teacher can do, and you can get this certainly from teachings, is they describe the path. And they know the challenges, they know the detours, and they just keep redirecting you but you that you can get from many different sources so i guess what i'm coming to as a statement we'll see how long i believe this is stop looking for a teacher just start practicing the teachings as best you understand them yeah yeah where you are that's the other thing is that what i'm hearing from you is that the era of thinking we're going to change everything or there's going to be an intervention that tips, you know, that there's going right. to be a tipping point, that there's going to be trim tabs. The the era that thinking that yes, we as a group, a movement, and it doesn't mean we stop working with groups and stop being right. part of movements. It may be that that's your path of service to, you know, when there's time to show up on the street, you show up on the street, but you right. show up on the street, you know, with you know, with an eye on like, where am I coming from? You know, yeah. where am I coming from in this? And even in that, you know, how can I be of service here? This, this is a very powerful path, Meg, what you're talking Thank about. You. It's, Thank you. It's like <laughs> moment by moment, because I am not pure. I don't know who is, maybe you are, but no. I am a bundle of neuroses and psychoses, as they say, you know, I'm a bundle of that. And so it's like, what you're, I'm hearing you say is that is cultivating the awareness of self and cultivating the openness to life as a teacher. And then seeing what arises, you know, surrender. And, and what finding practices that support right. you in that openness and that courage and that. Totally continual motivation you know if we were born in any place that was not about uh, global our western culture of individual achievement and service and saving the world which right. i tried my best to do thought it was my purpose in life yeah uh, me too <laughs> yeah right and look what happened right. we developed we became more right. available to people you're finding your path of contribution now. Um, It doesn't have to start with disappointment at what we did not achieve. We did not fail. Mm -hmm. Circumstances overtook us that were far beyond our Mm -hmm. ability to influence, period. And that, for me, is a major learning. What was going on all the time that we couldn't see through our idealism And now we've woken up to those dynamics and forces, which are purely negative and destructive. And that's seeing reality 
and then we find contribution. And that's always courageous, always. I want to, we probably should wind this up. I just want to reflect back one thing that, you know, representing the audience for this podcast, you know, people who care deeply are, are also in that process of what is my path of contribution? Where can I put in my ore from what I know? And there's people who are brilliant analysts. There are people who are devoted, you know, to organiz organizations and like spend half their days fundraising so that the work can continue. There are people stationed in throughout throughout organizations, communities, there's like people serving meals on wheels. There's like right. there's people everywhere. And so I think what you're suggesting is not that there's a, you know, for the masses, there's not a a, a total path. Of, you know, it's not the you're not a bodhisattva yet. You know, you're it's just in your service, become aware of and uh, you know, with your blind spots and also strengthen your devotion to doing whatever you're doing with love and, you know, with the purest spirit you can of service of just not, it's not about me. It's about. Yes. So this is so I'm just trying to get, get down to like no, what they call the meat and potatoes. <laughs> and I would only add, I'm going to put the gravy on this. Okay. <laughs> or the seasoning that we have to expect to be disheartened and overwhelmed. If you're out there serving meals to the poor, the homeless, how many more meals are needed now as opposed to last year? Where is it headed? Mm -hmm. We have to avoid, you know, the, the, at the heart of warriorship is our commitment not to rely on fear or aggression. <laughs> That's a big big order. Right, right. But as we're doing the work of service, I guess what I'm asking for is don't expect that we are alleviating the coming suffering or that we are going to prevent the current, the increased suffering. Be prepared for that and find the greatest sense of achievement and joy in the present moment. I am doing this today with these people in front of me. Now I'm, I've become a minimalist. I started at very high levels of trying to change the U S army or the national park service or whatever those high big bureaucracies mm -hmm. I was in um, is moment to moment expression of service that is the most meaningful thing. And we know this from countless stories of people in terrible situations. Did you just help one person at this very moment? Did you help maybe hundreds of people because of what you could set up? Let's do that. We, the work of service is creating more and more opportunities, but we have to expect disappointment and outrage and failure we just do what we can where we are with what we have and it is enormously satisfying but it's so hard in our goal achievement where we come from where i came from it takes a long time mm -hmm. to just realize no this moment this interaction this relationship this expression is inherently meaningful and everything else is still going on that's terrible you know our 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 big dreams and our goal oriented culture are really problematic at this mm. point and what keeps us from being in a meaningful relationship in the moment and this you know we're reconnecting in ways that feel very good to me. And um, is it enough? Well, it is enough if I keep it right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And then it fuels me for the work that I have to do elsewhere this day or beyond. 
is where we look for satisfaction, I guess, is also what I'm circling around here. And, you know, in the end, the meaning of life is all about relationships. (laughs) We just have to get rid of all the other conditions we put on it. And it's very hard. I mean, I'm completely aware of the difficulty of everything, the challenge of what I'm saying, because I've experienced, but I know it's, it, it works. I know it's a real path of contribution. So I'm so glad we had this time together. Wow. Thank you so very much yeah. for this inquiry into where we need to come from, not so much what we need to do. Oh, that's well said. Well yes. said. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. <laughs>